Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 12 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Tuesday, April 11th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Loddick. Bobby, this is a, a rare Tuesday morning edition of the podcast. You know, it, there have been a few developments since late last week, and it seemed like we just needed to get on this now or else we'd have too much to talk about. I know. I mean, the, the developments I'm sure you're referring to are Russell Westbrook's unquestioned seizure of the NBA MVP crown for, for this year. Is, is that Russell Westbrook of the sixth? Seed Oklahoma City Thunder, um, who's averaging a triple double for the first time since Oscar Robertson did it in 1962. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, but you know the the MVP has always gone to a number one or number two seed. I think the last last time there was an exception was a number three seed in. Was it Jordan or was it was it LeBron? It was. Listen, all I'm saying is Kawhi Leonard is going to be no higher than fourth in the MVP voting. <laughs> I if I wish this was TV and not <laughs> podcast land, so people could see the outrage on my face. Okay. Well, so speaking of outrage, no, 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 we're not skipping past that. Who's number three? I I assume you've got uh, you got LeBron and James Harden, and you think all three of them are more valuable than Kawhi Leonard, uh, my friend? Wait wait, 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 wait. Just to be clear, dear listeners, I'm saying all three of them will finish ahead of Kawhi Leonard in the final NBA MVP balloting. Uh, I right. think we should put a wager on. Yeah, this. yeah, okay. I, I think we should wager on that because I'll take that. I think he'll. The next. Time, I don't think he's going to win it necessarily, although he should. But I certainly don't think he's coming in fourth or lower. All right. So the next time that our that our two families go out to dinner. Um, I pay if Kawhi Leonard finishes third or higher in the NBA MVP rat race, and you pay if he's fourth or lower. Got it. All right, Deal. You, heard it, you heard it, dear listeners. <laughs> we started with a bet. So oh, we're going someplace fancy. Uh, we sure are, big you know, big spender. <laughs> uh, all right, so Bobby, um, some stuff happened. Yeah. Um, today we're going to talk, obviously, about the the, the Sherrod Airfield uh, cruise missile attack from last week. Um, that's that's going to be a deep dive. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. And then we have a few other items that I think are interesting, indeed quite important, and in, in maybe just less headline-grabbing. For example, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the attempt, <laughs> I think almost comical, almost United Airline-ish attempt by uh, CBP to try to uh, make Twitter reveal the identity of an anonymous account that is basically a uh, kind of a Trump-criticizing Government criticizing alt, uh, what is what alt is USCIS? Alt USCIS. I think it's a little soon to make a United Airlines joke about that. Oh but, no, but I don't think it's soon enough. <laughs> well, there's that. Hold um, my beer. We're also going to talk about Bobby this Thursday. Uh, the Supreme Court now fully stocked with nine justices, thanks to the swearing in of Justice Gorsuch yesterday. Um, it's going to decide whether to take a really important case about whether undocumented non-citizens within the United States are protected by the suspension clause, whether they're entitled to judicial review of their removal proceedings. Um, I think that's going to be a very big deal one way or the other, uh, not just in this context, but for the travel ban. Um, We might also talk a bit about the not-quite-recusal by Devin Nunes um, in the Hipsy Russia investigation. Can't let that one go unexamined for a while. Um, And just because we have to end with something light that doesn't end with one of us owing the other dinner, um, (laughs) we're going to close out our our, our show today with a little bit of a discussion of Hamilton, um, the musical, um, entirely because last night, as part of our Seder, um, our family actually sort of used a little bit the Hamilton Haggadah, Bobby. It was quite the experience. I I can't... I am... 
fascinated by what you just said. I cannot wait to hear what that possibly could have involved. So uh, um, it involved, skip over this unimportant legal stuff. It, it involved and, Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years and bread that didn't rise, like it, all Passover <laughs> stories. I just hope there was some rapping involved if, if you really were trying to get uh, Hamilton Fortunately, there. there's no recording. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope it doesn't show up at the end of this. Yeah, seriously. All right, so so let's start with, with seriousness. So okay. the, the, the airstrike. Yeah, and, and I'm, I suspect every listener knows that last week – um, there were 59 cruise missiles launched. Uh, I think they were launched from two U.S. Navy vessels in the Med, so out in international waters, uh, striking the Sherat airfield in Syria. This is a Syrian government-controlled airbase that I think is one of the more substantial airbases there. There's even been talk about the, the su- substantial percentage of the Syrian Air Force that may have been destroyed in the midst of the strike, though though not the runways, right? We, we the, the president himself tweeted to make sure we understood that he didn't think the important thing was striking runways. You know, I was, I was really, I was really confused about the strategy for the strike until President Trump tweeted about the runways. Well, it is funny, actually. So, as I was saying before we got started, there, there, I saw a lot of people criticizing the administration for attacking an airbase at the earliest stage when it sounded like um, they were pounding sand in the in the sense of pounding the runway, which is easy to fix and is not not really worth expenditure of all those uh, expensive missiles. In any event, uh, 59 missiles strike the airfield. This is the airfield from which the the now infamous sarin gas attack had been uh, carried out, or at least the, that attack had been launched earlier, the attack in Idlib province. So um, it obviously raises a, a wide range of issues, and I think we could bracket them or bucket them in three places. One, the domestic law questions in terms of the separation of powers. Uh, two, the international law question in terms of the UN charter. I don't think there's any real questions being raised about distinction, proportionality, and law of armed conflict issues. So it's really just the UN Charter it's more issue. The, what, what we might call the use ad bellum question, not the use in bellow question. Exactly. And then and then third, just a quick footnote about, about the war powers resolution. That, uh, that old chestnut. That old chestnut. It's, it's, always, it's always fun to discuss things consistently with <laughs> oh, the war powers resolution. So why don't we talk first about the domestic law uh, possible justifications. Uh, we have a few, th- a few things that are by way of official statements, we've got a notification that the administration uh, put forward to Congress. It doesn't say much. I can read the operative provision in whole. This is the official uh, executive branch statement to the Congress. Uh, the president you, writes. You, you might call it the War Powers Resolution letter. Right. I was trying to you know save that towards <laughs> towards that part of it. Um, Trump writing. I acted in the vital national security and foreign policy interest of the United States, comma pursuant to my constitutional authority to conduct foreign relations and as commander-in-chief and chief executive. No, that's it. There's there's nothing more than that. Including no reference to a statute. Definitely. That's the, So what's the main takeaway there? In the official statement of justification or, or, or legal basis, it's very explicitly an Article II argument. But of course, we all know how to read between the lines of this. And indeed, there's also circulating, uh, both Marty Lederman and Charlie Savage have drawn attention to what appear to be kind of talking points for the press. Uh, and it includes a section, this is you know ostensibly an executive branch document, that talks about the domestic law basis for using force. And, that, and that's a little more, more fulsome. So let me read a little bit from that. Um, As commander-in-chief, the president has the power under Article II of the Constitution to use this sort of military force overseas to defend important U.S. national interests. Let me, let me pause there. There's two <laughs> operative parts in that, in that sentence. Under Article II, the claim is this sort of military force, not necessarily all military force, but this sort, which 
what sort was it? A uh, an episodic one-off well, airstrike. Yeah, one-off airstrike. No boots on the ground. Right. No necessarily sustained commitment to doing more or getting dragged into doing more. Although that's an interesting question. So the the scale of the force is highlighted, and then that's matched with a claim about some special degree of U.S. interest being in place. Well, what well, but, it, but also right that defending right. So so it's a it's a nod toward defense. Yeah, yeah, right. This, we're not being the aggressors, right? But not defense of persons or installations or facilities, but defense of interests. Interest. And the paragraph goes on, and again, I'm reading here from the the press talking points that the executive branch appears to have prepared. Um, the United States has a strong national national interest in one preserving regional stability, two averting a worsening humanitarian catastrophe in Syria, and three deterring the use and proliferation of chemical weapons. And, and it kind of goes on. It says this is quote very similar to the authority for the use of force in Libya <laughs> in 2011, which I think everyone at the time pointed out when when there was a. Uh, sustained use of airstrikes in Libya in 2011 that whatever else the Obama administration might say at the time, that precedent will be invoked again. So here we are under the next president, and it's being invoked again. Uh, Steve, can you unpack a little bit? Uh, what is the underlying legal claim under Article 2 that this is all designed to fit into? So, I mean, I think the you know there's a lot of disagreement, Bobby, as you know, and as most of our listeners probably know, about just how far the president's inherent unilateral authority under Article 2 extends. Um, you know, Mike Ramsey and I um, actually did the, wrote together for the, the National Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution Project. That's fun. Uh, which was supposed to pair people who disagree with each other to sort of talk about what's settled and what's still open about oh. major constitutional provisions. So Mike and I did both the Declare War Clause and the Commander-in-Chief Clause. Um, and we, we basically agreed that, you know, we, we agreed what's settled and what's not settled. So what's settled about Article 2 is that the president can, by himself, without any statutory authorization, use military force to repel sudden attacks, yeah. right? See the prize cases. See the prize cases, this really fantastic and I think underappreciated 1863 Supreme Court decision in the height of the Civil War about why the blockade oh, yeah. Lincoln set up at the beginning of the war was 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 legal. Um, so repelling sudden attacks, Bobby, everyone agrees, Article 2. Um, how much further does that principle extend, right? So that means that on the morning of December 7th, 1941, FDR did not need Congress to shoot down Japanese planes once they're flying over U.S. airspace, once they're literally in the process of attacking Hawaii. But then wind that clock backwards, right? Does that mean FDR would have had the authority to attack the Japanese carriers while they were en route to that attack? Even, I certainly would have said yes. Well, again, right? I mean, but the point is that somewhere winding backwards, that authority has to stop. Right, right. Well, because otherwise the offense-defense distinction collapses and everything's defense. Now, the problem in this case is this is not really a question of pre of, of that scenario. Right. right, so that's not the issue. It's not a claim that, well, this is all national self-defense. Because they were about of, to attack us right, with these chemical right. weapons. So it's not that. That's, that's the classic sort of... Uh, you know, that was a theme in, in Iraq, for example, quite, in 2003, quite. although although ultimately Congress authorized it there. So what is it instead if it's not an extended claim about self-defense? So one of the things we've seen over the last 25, 30 years is presidents defining what they're allowed to defend with Article II authority much more capaciously, right? So the classical view is you can defend U.S. territory, right? The next step is you can defend U.S. personnel yeah. overseas. And then citizens And then overseas. citizens overseas, right? And then installations overseas. Um, we're past all of that, right? Now we're into amorphous interests 
um, that Bobby, I think everyone probably agrees the three interests laid out in the talking points are indeed important interests of U.S. Yeah, that's, policy. That's not really the debate, is it? Those no, are, right. The question is, important. right. Does qu- that count? The question is, does that count for Article Two purposes? Right. These are everyone agrees yeah. these are important interests, but Article Two is not supposed to be about defending interests; it's about to be defending the country. Um, those aren't necessarily the same thing. So let me suggest a, a, sl- a similar but slightly different way of looking at it. Um, one way to look at it is as you described, and maybe this is the same thing. I don't know. We're just kind of working this out as we yeah. talk about it. But um, why isn't it better to frame this in terms of the the question of the president's war powers running up against a limit when you're beyond those mm-hmm. certain core interests? Uh, maybe that question isn't as relevant if what the president's doing is not really war. And it's such a lower threshold in scale and intensity, you don't really get to that question. In other words, maybe the rule is just as described a moment ago, and you really have to confine where the defensive presidential war powers are. Right. But but that's not the question if it's just an isolated well, and I think and, and I think that's why we see the reference to the 2011 OLC Indeed. opinion. Indeed. Because one of the controversial things that that opinion did was it defined the term hostilities in the war powers resolution in a very specific way that probably doesn't encompass this kind of one-off yeah. airstrike. Indeed, this this would be, and, and it's not just the war powers resolution and hostilities, it's also the claim from 2011 about the declare war clause itself. So the exact same type of analysis was offered to fend off in 2000, let's, let's back up, in 2011, as Libya fell apart and the Qaddafi regime was uh, facing uh, revolution, uh, there was a Security Council uh, resolution authorizing certain limited forms of force. Ultimately, NATO got involved with airstrikes, uh, no-fly zones, protection of civilians, and ultimately really read that resolution for all it's worth. But the whole thing presented a domestic law question because the United States was engaged militarily there on a sustained basis, much much more sustained against that regime than what we're seeing here in the uh, the Shayrat airfield strike. And the question arose, well, how how is this okay? And, and the theory was... As, as noted a moment ago, very similar to what was claimed here, that this is below the threshold of war because it doesn't involve ground troops. It doesn't involve some kind of sustained commitment that's going to keep right. us there. Um, there were it was, it was in that case uh, that the government was looking back, the Obama administration was looking back to legal opinions that were rendered in relation to deployments in Haiti and Bosnia. I think we're different in terms of the the amount of force actually being used in the combat activity, and and, and the relationship to to ongoing UN and or NATO missions, right? I mean, I think one of the real sharp distinctions between this attack on Syria and almost all of those prior episodes is whatever the legal consequences, those prior episodes almost all involved U.S. uses of force as part of some larger international operation or consensus or agreement. I I agree that that distinction's there, but I don't think it's really relevant for the domestic law analysis, or I don't think it should be. It's it's definitely a distinction. I just think it's not serious. No, no, for the domestic law. I mean, I think we'll come back to it on the international law piece. But 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 some people do. Like I I think Marty uh, Marty Lederman, in in his arguments at Just Security, I think was putting a lot of weight on that distinction for the domestic law purpose. I think partly because, yes, although I, I will say, I think one of the things we're seeing is also the difficulty that folks who are in the government um, at the time of the Libya hostilities are having distinguishing. Oh, no question. Look, that, I think at the time of the Libya intervention, it was it was clear to a lot of people that look, this, this example is going to be used again. And in this case, it's being used again, and so far, 
for a one-off strike, so a much more right. much more limited in time and scope type of military intervention, but without any of the uh, the prior example, the Libya examples, uh, international cooperation elements. But so I'll just say, I mean, if we can put aside the historical precedence for a second, because I'm not one who believes that the existence of historical examples settles the constitutional question. But do you agree it's relevant? Of course, it's relevant. Yeah. I mean, I think, right, this goes back to, like, what role does historical gloss play right, exactly. in separation of powers analyses? It's still, I think, worth making the basic sort of first principle point that if Article II authority extends to defending amorphous national interests, then that's actually going to be a dramatic um, hook for presidents of all shapes and sizes, of all stripes, um, to use interests they expound oh, yeah. as sort of a bootstrapping hook for the use of military force. Um, everywhere up to what we would think of as a classical, you know, sort of boots on the ground, armed conflict paradigm. And I don't think that's really either what the founders intended with the Declare War Clause or, as importantly, what the War Powers Resolution is yeah. meant to exclude. Well, so I completely agree that when the test becomes, do we have important enough interest? I mean, it's really tempting to say, well, that's no test at all. Right. If you're doing this, if you're willing to expend the political capital and the diplomatic capital to do this, chances are very good that you've got some kind of pretty plausible. I mean, uh, what if it's what if it's point. what if it's economic interest, right? Yeah. You know, so so now we can use Article Two force because it's in the economic interest of the United States to decapitate a particular Chinese industry. I mean, right. that's that can't be the answer, right? So I, I think that a lot a lot of what this really turns on is. Is whether we want to have in legal doctrine in this area. Well, first of all, is legal doctrine capable of constraining, as a practical matter, is it really capable of constraining the executive branch? Um, that's that's actually a really serious question. Yep. Uh, it could be that this is all well and good for us to talk about, but at the end of the day, um, it's it's not going to be enforceable. So I, I guess my, my reaction to that, and maybe this dovetails with another point that we should make while we're talking about domestic authority, is, you know, obviously these cases, these disputes don't end up in courts. Um, mm -hmm. Right, this sort of a classic example of legal questions that really are not ones that the courts are typically involved right. in resolving. Um, instead, they're resolved between the political branches. Yep. And it seems to me that even though we've heard very little criticism from Capitol Hill about last week's strike, that would change pretty quickly if the force were ramped up without going to Congress, right? If there was, yeah. if this pattern started to repeat itself without legislative investment. Well, I think that's right. Look, so I think this is a classic example of the Constitution outside the courts in which both of us are constantly trying to get the students to focus on the fact that it's not just what happens in courts that counts. And and to this, the skeptics who say, well, if it's not in the courts and there's not going to be enforcement as such, then what does it really matter? Well, I think it matters because if you look at what the legislators and the executive branch officials themselves seem to think they have to argue with one another about, they frequently are arguing about the terms of these legal doctrines. Uh, they seem to think it matters. Maybe it only matters in the sense that having no good argument makes puts you in such a weak position in your arguments with the other side that you're you're actually effectively constrained to some greater degree. In any event, that it, it does seem to have some bite. And, and also to say, and, and I think it's worth noting, right? I mean, this is sort of to take a political moment here. Um, there's a rather disheartening contrast, in my view, between all of the members of Congress who were so critical when President Obama went to them in 2013 about providing some kind of clearer statutory framework for using force in Syria against the Assad regime to deter chemical weapons, um, and who basically said, no, it's your problem, go clean it up, 
um, right, who are now saying, yes, this is great, this is exactly what we want. I mean, there's some kind of disconnect here that I hope is about more than just the fact that now a Republican's president. Well, so I don't know. I've, I'm not familiar with how much people really were critical of Obama. I know they didn't actually give him an authorization, but I'm not sure how much criticism there was at that time. It's certainly equally consistent to say that, look, we've now had several years of watching horrors unfold there, and now we've had this in, in the wake of being told that the diplomatic solution had worked and now finding out, in fact, and I think this is hugely important, we, we thought we'd fixed it, right? And we totally hadn't. And now we have nothing less than a sarin gas attack. I mean, it's so horrific that I think it's pretty reasonable for members of Congress at this point to say, well, actually, we're pretty happy at this point to see this. But, if it's, really, but if, it's, if it's that horrific, if there's congressional consensus and if most importantly there's time to go to Congress, then I would argue that that's the exact circumstance in which both the Constitution and the War Powers Resolution contemplate that the president actually get the legislature to buy in before he starts using force. Yeah, so I, I disagree with that. In this case, I think the administration, I think actually some people said on the record, I'm not sure if they were named or not, but officials said, look, if we if we go to Congress on the front end and say we'd, we'd like you to vote us an authorization before we carry out an airstrike like this, then that's going to give the Syrians notice that, all right, they're about to do it, move the stuff we off. We gave the them base. notice. Well, we did. And if you put it, how do you mean exactly that we gave them notice? We told the Russians we were coming. Do we really think the Russians didn't tell the Syrians we were coming? Look, I think there's entirely, it's entirely possible the whole thing was actually uh, orchestrated yes. very, very carefully, right. in fact, so that it could be done in a way that wouldn't escalate. But is that so bad? No, I'm not. Wait, wait, hold on a second, Bobby. I'm no. not saying that's bad. I'm saying that this wasn't exactly a sneak attack, right? And so, no, but you're arguing the larger point in the abstract, and I'm talking about in the abstract as well. In the abstract, you can't necessarily go have that that advanced notification where you're talking about in public, and then there's an approval, and then you've got. No, I agree. But imagine if Congress had passed. Imagine if President Trump goes to Congress and says, "Listen." I'm not, I don't want a war in Syria. I don't want to put boots on the ground in Syria. But I do want authority to conduct limited airstrikes as I deem necessary to eliminate their chemical weapons yeah. capability. Yeah. Right. And to, right. I think Congress passes that statute. And I think that sort of illuminates the point that Article 2, to my view, is meant to provide authority in cases in which Congress is, to borrow a term from international humanitarian law, unwilling or <laughs> you know unable so, so to I, authorize the use of military force. Neither of those were true here. I, I think they certainly probably, I don't know if you can ever say for sure they would have, but they might have. And it would always be better if you can have it to have that kind of approval in advance, for sure, rather than acting unilaterally. But again, if the question is, can the president on a one-off basis, on a small scale, do this without that authorization? That is, he should get it. It'd be nice to have it, but does he have to get it? Um, I'm not sure you can say no in this case without definitely having to say no as to Libya as well. In other words, if Trump crossed the line, certainly Obama did. In, in Libya. So I, I, that might be right. I guess the, so this is where we should probably pivot to the international law conversation because I actually think that, you know, Marty's real point, which I think is worth taking seriously, is that the domestic and international law questions may dovetail. Like there may be a residuum of domestic law authority that turns on the use of force being consistent with international law. Um, and so maybe that's this is a good segue to, to the to yeah the UN let's, let's let's pivot over. So the UN Charter, Bobby, um, for folks who are not super familiar with it, right? There are two major principles here, right? There's the Article Two Four um, 
prohibition on uses of force on the territory of a foreign sovereign without that that country's consent. Um, and then there's Article 51's exception for self-defense. Right. And so the usual way to march through this sort of – and let's, let's be clear. The United States – it's party to the UN Charter. It is, we are. It is supreme law of the land under the under the supremacy well, clause as a charter. Uh, yeah. uh, you're not so sure. I have I have concerns about Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion in the Medellin case and what it does to non self executing treaties in the oh, supremacy I see. clause. I see. I but see. but let's just but but that's neither here nor there for the moment. Right. Just as a general proposition, the United <laughs> States is party to the treaty. The treaties are supreme law of the land, so it's it's not crazy to be talking about the UN Charter no, no, in no. case you had any doubts at home. So. Article 2.4 says don't use force in the territory of another state in various contexts. I don't think there's any question as, as a first step in the analysis, was this a use of force? Of course, it's 59 cruise missiles. Right. And so and so whatever we're going to define hostilities to mean under domestic law, I think international law would clearly recognize this yeah, as a use of force. I don't think there's any doubt that which is part of why this I think isn't this even is, Which is part of why I think this is actually a, a, a more likely... More, I think this is why I think the international law question comes out worse for the strike. Oh, I think so too. It's just the international law matters less. Well, right. So yeah, that's the combo. All right. Yeah. So so it is a use of force on the territory of a right. foreign sovereign. And so, Syria did not so consent. That, so as an initial matter, it's presumptively unlawful unless one of the various exceptions applies. And right. so there there are sort of two very clearly established pathways to to overriding that that prohibition. One is the UN Security Council authorizes the use of force. That hasn't happened here, so we can set that And that's that not aside. going to happen here. Right. And the reason why? Uh, because Russia has a permanent veto on the Security Council. Exactly. Which introduces sort of, that that's, begins to introduce the, the moral shadow that's cast over the entire True. UN charter system, right? Yes. That the permanent members having a veto, the, the willingness in many instances of, say, Russia or China to, to say no, even if there's a humanitarian justification where the argument on policy grounds for the Security Council to act is very strong. But I mean, it, this is neither the first nor the last time no that, indeed. that it, the structure of the Security Council is going to be the, the principal obstacle to meaningful international consensus. Indeed, that, that's been the story all along since the Cold War and certainly certainly in more recent years, that it's, it's in theory possible for the Security Council to do the right thing in the face of a humanitarian disaster, but very often for reasons of national interest, it won't. And the question then becomes, do you stick with a rigid approach to the law or do you allow the moral consideration or other considerations to trump that? And that, that's what this is all about. No pun intended. Yes. No, you're right. I really got to be careful with that phrase. <laughs> all right. So that the Security Council pathway is blocked or jammed up. It's not going to work because of the national interest of Russia. There's another pathway. There's Article 51, which recognizes that never mind whether you have a Security Council resolution, in the event of an armed attack, you can use uh, force in self-defense or, or in collective self-defense. Now, uh, sometimes when we talk to students about this, they say, well, okay, so you're, de you're defending these poor people, right? The Syrian people. Well, the, I think most people would read Article 51 as referring to the defense of governments or of sovereigns. Right. So, but I mean, but Bobby, we have we have a student who asked in class yesterday um, why there wasn't an argument that, insofar as the U.S. was responsible for funding some of the rebels, for supporting mm -hmm. some of the rebels, for providing at least some forms of humanitarian assistance to some of the civilians caught up in this conflict, why that doesn't get us into self-defense of those U.S. projected interests. Right. And so, I think the 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 answer has to be that. 
if you're allowed to bootstrap yourself into the position of being able to invoke self-defense by beginning without raising any of these issues initially to provide aid and support to various non-state actors, um, then you can kind of engineer yourself into always being able to invoke self-defense. Right. right? So, so it just so happened that we sent aid to North Korean civilians suffering from a famine Right. Oh, look, now we have a self-defense justification for using force on North Korean soil. Right. Or to put a finer point on it, let's say the Russian government right. sends aid to separatists in Ukraine or elsewhere, and suddenly they're invoking self-defense on behalf of, uh, well, it's shifted over to the Baltics, right? You, you can see where the, the point is. It's a two-edged sword, these arguments. And now, whatever argument we're going to put forward, we need to be prepared for Vladimir Putin to throw right back at us. Now, Bobby, I want to throw out two other ideas that have gotten some purchase about why this might not be unlawful under international law, right? Mm -hmm. The first is... Um, a variation of unwilling and unable, right? Mm -hmm. That that the Syrian government doesn't have the authority to claim territorial integrity, right, for purposes of an Article 2.4 violation because of both what's happening in eastern Syria, where it clearly doesn't have territorial integrity, um, and also because of the fact that they're using these weapons against their own populace. So the latter argument, I think, gets... The, the former argument, just the sheer loss of territorial control, seems like it opens up a dangerous can of worms. That and once any, you lose, like, one inch of territory. Right. You know, so, so there's some city that's taken over by the Taliban, and, and, and suddenly somebody who's sympathetic to them could could claim to be acting on in their self-defense. Right. It, seem, it seems to intrude too much on sovereignty. And in this case, there's no question that the part of Syria where the chemical weapon attack occurred is within the its control and sovereignty of the Syrian government. Yeah, it just seems like it opens up too, yep. too big an exception. The more interesting argument that's sort of at the root of what I've always thought of as the uh, sort of the robust or muscular version of R2P, responsibility to protect, it's a form of sovereignty waiver theory. If Article 2.4 is protection against other states coming into your territory with force is rooted in the idea that as sovereigns, no one else is allowed to do that normally. Well, if you behave abominably enough towards your own citizens, do you lose or wave by your own dirty hands? It's, a, it's an unclean hands argument. So, Bobby, the, obviously the human rights community um, is very enthusiastic. It's not the right word, but, but interested in R2P type arguments. Um, do you have any sense that that's, what, that, that that's a plausible theory in this case? So... Here's the problem. It, again, it comes back to the two-edged sword or the, or the uh, are you willing to live with the precedent you're setting. Um, it's very tempting to say that when we have unclean enough hands on the part of some other government, at a certain point, if it's horrific enough, the outside world should be able to intervene even in the face of, of one permanent member of the Security Council being intransigent. You, you've got to, at some point, the moral demands outweigh the uh, the legalisms, right? And it's deeply sympathetic. And if you have an extreme enough case, well, it starts to become almost morally compelling, not just persuasive, but compelling. The, but the dilemma is who gets to judge it right. and what is the metric of it? And how do you prevent the precedent you thereby establish from being thrown back in your face? Now, in, uh, in the example that's often cited late 90s in Kosovo, in the, the air, NATO's air campaign to stop uh, the Serbian military from doing what it was doing in the Kosovo province, um, there, the, the United States and NATO did intervene militarily, and ultimately, without any Security Council blessing and no real ability to invoke the proper kind of self-defense Article 51 has in mind. And I think the judgment of history on that is, is best captured by this phrase, illegal but legitimate, right? the idea that this was, in fact, not consistent with the UN Charter, just owning that and being blunt about it. It was a violation of the UN Charter, perhaps, but nonetheless the right thing to do. And it's, it's almost a civil disobedience type theory. Um, 
And do you buy it? Do I buy it? Well, I think as framed in that way, it's hard to quibble with it. I think it was legitimate and morally justified in the same way that if if the the Western world had been willing to intervene in Rwanda right. and if there had been some inability to get the Security Council to act, but nonetheless people intervened. Right. If the U.S. had unilaterally sent troops. Yeah, I mean, how, how could you say it's it, – knowing what we know with the benefit of hindsight about the horrors that were about to unfold, if we had prevented that, would it, would it have been worth the U.N. Charter violation? But, but, sure. But, Bobby, if RTP is the justification, then at the risk of – of of overstating things, um, can a one-off tomahawk strike that does not appear to have really decimated the chemical weapons capability of the Syrian government, um, that really does not seem to have any other impact on the civilians who are suffering through the horrors of the civil war, can that really be justified on a theory that presupposes some far larger commitment to um, ease the suffering of, of individuals who have protected status. Right. So so just to be kind of clear about where we are in the conversation, we're, we're basically assuming for the sake of argument that maybe the right way to think about this is, all right, it's a violation of the charter, but maybe it was the right thing to do nonetheless. And sometimes sometimes you violate the law because there's a larger need to do it. Um, and now you're asking, is that actually fitting the facts here? Well, I think of it this way. So Secretary Mattis had a statement yesterday where he concluded his his press release statement by saying something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I strongly advise the Syrians don't think about using chemical weapons again. The idea is this was proof that we are willing to cross this line. It was a credible commitment. 59 cruise missiles all generating all this debate and discussion showing that the Trump administration is not going to hold back just for lack of a clear UN, let me let me develop the point a little more. Not going to hold back just because the legal grounds are shaky. And it was in and of itself not a particularly militarily significant act, right? Um, there may have been some big impact on the Syrian Air Force. That's being debated. There's no particular reason to think. Indeed, we were told they actually didn't target the sarin stockpile right. for fear that it would just spread throughout the area. Right. But nonetheless, they crossed the Rubicon. They took this action that previously had been talked about but hadn't been taken. So the, uh, the question that's important here is, do we think that it's more or less likely or, or the same as before, that the Assad regime will use chemical weapons again. I think it's much less likely. They may yet do it, but I think it's much less likely than without the strike. And if I'm right about that, then there's a larger downstream diffused effect reinforcing the norm against using chemical weapons. If that's true, then I think we're at least in the ballpark of having a real and good conversation about whether this was perhaps perhaps a charter violation, but nonetheless the right thing to do. Yeah, I guess I have no faith whatsoever that this sophisticated line of analysis you've just expounded um, is what was happening in the White House, right? That, that, that this was the conversation and that the end result was 59 Tomahawk missiles to this one airbase without hitting the sarin gas stockpile, the end. I mean, it seems to me that- why, why so skeptical about that? Is it just skepticism about Trump caring about nuance? Because um, there's many more people involved, right? Mattis himself, I think, some probably more, was thinking exactly along those lines. There are some lines. more people involved. I mean, yeah. so w- w- listen, you have to have staff in the State Department to actually have a meaningful conversation well, about State Department. consequences. Yeah, I don't think the State Department's central to this no, no, but, but But my point is a larger one, right? Which is, I do think some of it is a trust and credibility deficit. I think some of it is, you know, if R2 is really what's going on. This is an awfully, how do I say, um, discreet way to try to actually carry out an R2P policy. Oh, I, right? I, I think actually this is ex- 
look, they're trying to thread a needle here. If if I'm right about, what, I, th- I think this is what at least a, a lot of folks look at the description in the in the uh, press points. It's it's all about this sort of norm enforcement. If that is what's going on, you can't really go in much more heavy handed than they did without running afoul of the offsetting concern that you can't have an escalation with the Russians. And as we talked about earlier. It looks a lot like, to some extent, there was some degree of quiet collaboration with us and the Russians right, right. To, but, to send this signal to us. But Bobby, if we really in. care about RTP, should we start listing all the other places in the world where the U.S. should be exercising military force to protect civilian populations well, against you're these kinds of atrocities? You're raising a different argument now. It becomes more of a question about selective R2P that's really perhaps masking national interest. Well, so my and my concern is that if you really care about R2P, it shouldn't be selective. That doing it selectively gives at least the appearance that what's really going on is something other than some new standing, remarkably progressive commitment to human rights protection of civilians. I think that the Syrian chemical gas, the sarin gas attack in Syria and the larger humanitarian catastrophe, the larger pattern of consistent usage of chemical weapons does actually make a plausible case for standing out as a case for special action, even if it's it's entirely true that there's a degree of where where is the intervention in poor places and places where the United States is not paying as much attention. Um, you don't want to let the best be the enemy of the good here. I, I agree with that. I guess I just I just don't have your faith that what is behind last Thursday's airstrike is some moral opprobrium about the use of chemical weapons as opposed to uh, a moment of political opportunism. I mean, it seems to me that if we really were, as a nation, morally committed to the horrors that have, to, to easing and alleviating the horrors that have been inflicted on the civilian population of Syria over the last five years, um, we would be doing things other than 59 Tomahawk missiles to, air, to, to an airfield. Congress in 2013 would have actually maybe provided more support other than just funding the rebels, right? I mean, I th- like, there's just, th- there's a disconnect, Bobby, between the very elegant story you tell about the propriety of the strike as a sort of humanitarian matter and every other action the U.S. has or has not taken vis-a-vis Syria. It seems to me that what's going on here is a chemical weapon-specific reaction. There's no question that if it was just a larger claim about, oh, the plight of the poor Syrians, as if as if the president sort of just suddenly re- – and it does seem like the president suddenly realized that, oh, my God, life is terrible there for these people. But it seems to be a but, chemical weapon-specific But, weapon but, let, me, but, let, me, but let me keep Syria on the travel ban list so that right, exactly. poor kids who are being killed with chemical weapons can't be refugees to the United States. No, I, I look, I completely agree. No, I'm utterly in sympathy with your your point there. But as to the justification here, the justification they actually put forward is I chemical weapons. I guess, I guess I just disagree. That I, I have a problem with the theory that RTP is ordinance specific. Um, I don't think he's making a general R2P claim. He's making a claim about chemical weapons usage being beyond the pale. And, with, and there is an international treaty that the U.S. is a party to called the Chemical Weapons Indeed. Convention Indeed. that does not specifically authorize one country to go around and be the world's police for chemical weapons convention violations. And he's not, and he's not claiming that because of the Chemical Weapons Convention well, we violated, but, that's but the But that to basis. me is let yet another right. sort of problem with this argument, right? Well, but you're, you're just pointing out the whole general problem with R2P, right? That yes. there's, there's, It's always going to be shot through with hypocrisy if any country ever acts because they don't always act and and most countries don't act at all so i think if we're ever going to be able to have any sort of r2p like military intervention on the grounds of it may be a charter violation but it's morally justified in this case if we're ever going to have it it's always going to be criticizable in this way so i think we're going to go in circles i mean is it right to say that the bottom line is you and i are of the view that the domestic legal authority is shaky but not clearly missing 
Yeah, I think it's less shaky maybe than you think it is. I think it's shaky. You think it's less shaky, but certainly not clear in either direction. I think that if you like 2011 Libya, then you're kind of stuck with this one. Like legally as opposed to, yes. again, morally. Yes, yeah. Right? Yeah. And that internationally, it's actually not shaky legally. It's quite clearly a violation of the charter, but that perhaps this is one of those violations of the charter sort of like running a red light when you're on your way to the hospital right. that we can just live with. Indeed. And uh, we promised a little reference to the War Powers Resolution. Oh, yeah, that guy. It's, it's always kind of, uh, at least to the academics, kind of fun to note. So where is each president going to be on this? And um, I think some people wondered if perhaps, indeed, I saw a few tweets asking, uh, you know, I think Lemon Slayer had asked, uh, you know, is there even going to be a War Powers Resolution notification? The War Powers Resolution, my friends, requires that in the event of a, of an action like this, within 48 hours, there must be notification to Congress. And lo and behold, just before the deadline or a few hours before the deadline, there was a formal War Powers Resolution notification. Which, like all presidents, the notification was consistent with the War Powers Resolution, not yeah. necessarily yeah. pursuant to. All the presidents always say, we're doing this as it happens, consistent with the War Powers Resolution. What a coincidence. Not because we really feel like you can make us do it. Um, and as usual, nothing turns on it. The only thing that's always interesting to, to mention about the War Powers Resolution is there's the calendar, the clock. Once you make the notification, you've got the 60-day window uh, within which, in theory, you've got to get congressional explicit approval or else withdraw your forces. And as always gets observed in a case like this, if your intervention is a one-off airstrike, that's totally irrelevant. Right, because there's not the the clock the clock stopped before it started, yeah. and this is this underscores the difference between what Trump just did and what Obama did in Libya. In Libya, it was a sustained issue. The airstrikes were an ongoing campaign, and when Gaddafi when Gaddafi didn't fold the tent quite as quickly as expected, the day the deadline kept getting closer and you know, closer. All I will say, I mean, it looks for now like this was a one-off strike. I mean, yeah. we have heard deeply conflicting statements. From Secretary Tillerson, from Secretary Mattis, and from Sean Spicer, and, and from Ambassador Haley, and, so. from, and from Nikki Haley about what about whether there are further strikes coming. By the way, can I give a quick you know endorsement of Ambassador Haley, who I, I was a little skeptical, just thinking she didn't have much experience in this area, but I think has has been a pretty strong uh, person in the UN in terms of speaking out in in a way that uh, I think we can all be proud about denouncing the Assad regime, even in the face of that, as you pointed out a moment ago, not necessarily having been the larger administration position recently. No, I listen, I I agree. I mean, I think I think, you know, when you set the bar, you know, an inch off the ground, it's pretty easy to clear. Oh, it. I think you got to be more charitable than that when you see people in this administration I think, doing the right thing, we should we should reinforce that. Did we did we give out participation awards during the Obama administration? I think this is way more than participation. Well, so listen, I'm I'm all for I, I have nothing critical to say about what Nikki Haley has been saying yeah. in New York about the Syrian episode. I have lots of doubt that Nikki Haley and Rex Tillerson are speaking for the administration on these questions. And yet we did intervene militarily, consistent with that perspective, rather than what seemed to be the policy before. But you're right that uh, Spicer did say the other day that, uh, you know, now now there may be a problem with barrel bombs. Right. And so you, you really wonder, I mean, just how far over is, is this administration going to go in one week from having endorsed uh, the solution where Assad stays in power to uh, to all sorts of examples of, of intervention? And you're right, too, to say that if we end up striking again, then suddenly it raises the question of whether there is one sustained air campaign, albeit episodic, in which case the 60-day clock starts to get interesting. But then again, when that clock, when that calendar date was hit in 2011, the administration's argument was, uh, none of this is really relevant because none of this is hostilities. 
so we'll see. I mean, I, the last thing I just want to say before we should probably turn talk about something else because we've lost everybody. Yes. Um, right. <laughs> um, there were some members of Congress over the weekend, right, who started throwing the AUMF term around, right, an authorization for the use of military force, ah. um, including a couple of members who apparently didn't realize that ISIS and Syria are not the same thing. Uh, a couple members of Congress um, were trying to figure out why the 2001 AUMF, insofar as Obama used it to under, to undertake certain military actions yeah. in Syria, wouldn't also cover this. Yeah, that's that's, that's a pretty big stretch. I don't yes. I don't think I think it's not an accident that that one's not mentioned in the quite power no. But then no, I think the more interesting question is whether, as part of a broad, I mean, we've talked multiple times on the podcast before about what it's going to take for Congress to revisit the 2001 AUMF. Yeah. I wonder if you know. Something that provokes a reopening of the ISIS conversation might, in turn, provoke a conversation about Syria, or, or vice versa. Right? Yeah. The, the, the discussion about if there ends up being more than one airstrike in this area, right. if Congress decides to get involved, it would be funny if if they do produce an AUMF that's sort of tailored to either chemical weapons or something else, allowing some kind of right. intervention. What do they do about ISIS? Yeah, if you're going to do that, shouldn't you at that same time mention ISIS? Oh gosh. Well, well that'll we'll be see. something to watch. All right. So, Bobby. And on a little bit of a, I guess, more depressing note, light, lighter but depressing note, do you want to talk a bit about the the Twitter alt-USCIS yeah. brouhaha? So, I, this, to me, has the air of a Keystone Cops kind of oh thing. And, and I, I strongly suspect this all unfolded because of some very low-level, not top-down mandated low-level deal. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, so what was it that happened? Well, um, after the election, as, as listeners probably know, a lot of sort of faux, often very humorous, uh, Trump administration critical fake government I- entity accounts like, uh, you know, the whatever, the National Forest right. Service or... The US, no, it was the, U- the U.S. Park Service, right? U.S. Park Service, most famously. No, the Park Service one was the best. Yeah, and so these, these are accounts that are humorously trolling the administration on various policy issues. Some of which appear to be run by current... Right, government employees. Well, well, that's the interesting question. We have no idea. They might be run by right, you know this, this guy I'm looking at outside the there's, window there's right now. There's speculation given the content of some of the tweets. Yeah. No, there, there's. I think if I had to bet, I'd say that a few disgruntled employees have taken to Twitter anonymously, and are, anonymously, and are having a great time and, and enjoying enjoying themselves and, and skewering the administration here and there. One of these is Alt US CIS. Is it underscore? Yes. I think? Alt, Alt underscore. underscore. Don't knock the underscore. Yeah. ALT underscore US CIS. CIS, of course, being the acronym for the US Citizenship and Immigration Services, the the sort of over the the, the new name for INS. Right. And, and then this has clearly been critical of, of the new turn in uh, executive branch policy on immigration matters. Uh, so it's very critical. And then lo and behold, they get an administrative summons. From, they being Twitter. Yeah. Sorry. T- let me clarify. Twitter gets a summons from Customs and Border Protection, CBP, uh, demanding that Twitter reveal the identity of who's controlling that account. Now, that is that in itself of itself is right up there with United Airlines dragging people off flights. That's that's really astonishing trying to unmask the identity of of a uh, a user who's engaging in public criticism of the administration. And indeed is who 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 at least by public by 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 outward accounts has committed no criminal activity. Oh yeah, I mean there's there's this is not this is not criminality. I have seen a few people say like, well, you know, there, there's a lot of leak investigations going on. There's nothing leaking. There's nothing in the nature of secret or even confidential right. information as far right. as none, I've ever none, heard. None of these accounts are posting classified documents. None of these accounts are saying wait till tomorrow when we unveil this new policy. Right. No, it's just a, it's a satire account, yep. basically. 
Yeah. So it on its face looks pretty darn outrageous. And, and, and raises really important First Amendment questions. Right. Now, here's the interesting part. So under what authority did CBP purport to demand this? They actually had a legal argument. It's 19 U.S. Code Section 1509, titled Examination of Books and Witnesses. Well, uh, it does create an authority for some forms of disclosure, but not just for any purpose. This is all related, Steve, to uh, examining situations where there's been some sort of uh, wrongdoing in relation to the importation of merchandise. (laughs) This is about dodging tariffs. It is on its face. Right. Title, I mean, let's be clear, right? Title 19 is the customs duties yeah. provision of the U.S. Code. This, this isn't some leak. Inv- it's not a national security right. letter. It's not some general uh, law investigative authority. This is and about customs enforcement. And its proximity to Title 18, which is the criminal code, is simply alphabetical. Alphabetical, right. Now, the whole thing's pretty outrageous. Uh, can, it, can I say, and, yeah. and Bobby, and, and we were talking before, before we actually recorded this, that, you know, we've both seen lots of reports, anecdotal reports to be sure, about what certainly appears to be inappropriate behavior by individual CBP officers, right? Um, asking the kinds of questions of people returning to the country that we would never have thought you would have heard as yeah. recently as a year ago. Yeah. Do you think this is this is emblematic of a larger sort of post-Trump attitude on the part of the Customs and Border Patrol? So I truly don't know anything about what the baseline status quo was, whether CBP was run a certain way before and and people were being managed in a way that prevented that sort of uh, what you might call discretionary abuses, even if they're small scale abuses, um, and whether there's something different now, or maybe this is how it's always been, or maybe it's simply the, the dilemma of having a very, very large organization with lots of people in stressful positions. That President Trump repeatedly says endorsed him in the campaign. Not true. It was the union. Agencies can't endorse candidates. Yeah. So th- again, I hate to keep coming back to the United thing, but uh, one of the questions with the United is, do they really have a policy that is that stupid? Or did a couple of people fail to exercise the judgment the company's leadership would have expected right. them to exercise in that instance? Same deal here. Is it, I, I don't know whether this was some attempt uh, that had a bit of top-down support behind it or whether some person really misunderstood what Section 1509 allows. But either way... Uh, Twitter, which is, you know, much to its credit, immediately rose to the defense of... And said, uh, you've got to be kidding me. Right. And the ACLU got involved. And once it got elevated and the New York Times started writing articles about it, uh, CBP withdrew withdrew its request. (laughs) And so Twitter was able to drop the lawsuit that it had to file. The the funny thing is, the whole thing becomes a Streisand effect uh, moment. Tell everybody, what's a Streisand effect? Well, okay. You're you're, you're the Barbara Streisand fan of the two of us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not so sure, you know, that's not quite right. But um, You you don't bring me flowers, Bobby. Not anymore. So (laughs) anyways... uh, This is the idea that when you go forth and complain about something like this, all you're really likely to achieve is drawing attention to the thing you're trying to silence, right? So here's some number I saw this morning. Uh, This alt-USCIS account had 32,000 followers uh, after about two months of existence. And by the end of last week, with all the attention this was getting, they're up to 155,000. I'll check again in a moment uh, just to see how the number's gone. Maybe you could dig it up, Steve. I bet it's much higher than that. So way to go, CBP. You've made sure that everyone is carefully following Alt-USCIS. Alt-USCIS, which now has 193,000 followers. All right. So go. Uh, so the follow Tuesday recommendation, alt underscore USCIS. So I guess what you're saying is if I were a parody account mocking the Trump administration, I'd get more followers? 
Maybe we can get them to endorse NSL podcast. Um, or Steve underscore Vladek. Or <laughs> at Bobby Chesney. <laughs> yeah. All right, on to our next topic. Yeah, speaking of. Uh, so speaking of immigration, I mean, I, I, I do think, I mean, before we leave that, that last topic, I do think that there appears to be, Bobby, um, a sense that whatever discretion the law invests in these Customs and Border Patrol officers, they seem to be exercising with a freer hand if anecdotal reports should be believed. Whether this is an example of that or not, we don't know. But there is a requirement, Bobby, in our universe that particular kinds of requests have to be signed off on by higher level officials. So now, right, it's a DOJ guideline that you can't, um, line U.S. attorneys can't subpoena reporters without a much higher DOJ official signing off on it. I wonder if that's the real solution here. I think it's probably the case. In fact, I'm very confident in this. That there, you know, there's a large number of agencies out there with various finds of agency-specific, relevant, uh, if you will, discovery type authorities, subpoena type authorities. And I think that when you get away from the high-profile stuff about what like FBI can do on national security letters, and you get into the weeds that are immensely important if you're in that agency, but most of us don't follow on the outside, like Section 1509. <laughs> of Title XIX. Right. You, you find that uh, nobody's really minding the store right. in the same kind of careful way. you got to be careful. You know, this authority is, I, I don't know how often it's used. I've never seen data on it. It's probably used all the time in perfectly important and reasonable ways. And we want to make sure that if there needs to be a fix here, and by the way, notice that there didn't need to be a fix. Nope. The, 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 the ordinary process very quickly got this inappropriate usage slapped down. The system actually worked. Um, if there's got to be a fix, let's make sure we don't gum up the works for ordinary administrative activity. Yeah, all I'll say is, I'll say is not every recipient of one of these orders is Twitter. Right, and it's right. going to know is both going to feel confident that it can push back, and is going to know how to push back. Listeners, if you've received a Section fifteen oh nine request, let us know. We'll share your story as well. All right, so really quickly, Bobby, the one other story I wanted to hit before we turn to a little bit of frivolity, frivolia, frivolia, administrivia, is this Thursday. So two days from now is actually a really important moment for the Supreme Court. Uh, Of course, I'm sure our listeners know yesterday, Neil Gorsuch was sworn in as the 113th justice. Um, Although, just to be clear, the 111th person, right? Yeah, that's right. There were two non-consecutive justices, thank you, Rutledge and Hughes, um, (laughs) right? Um, Which means we're back to a full court. The first time the full court's going to actually conduct any business is Thursday when they have a conference to review a whole bunch of pending cert petitions. Bobby, one of the pending cert petitions is in a case I've been following very closely. I've been involved as an amicus. Um, It's called Castro versus Homeland Security. We talked briefly about this a couple weeks ago, but in short, in Castro, the Third Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court in Philadelphia, held that undocumented immigrants who are physically but not lawfully present in the United States, so they're they're here, but they're out of status, um, are both, one, functionally equivalent to arriving aliens stopped at the border, and two, as such, not protected by the Constitution's suspension clause, and so not entitled to habeas review of their detention and or their removal. Okay, so the idea is uh, if somebody just shows up at the airport in, in Miami or Houston or someplace and they're not legally authorized to enter, they can't just by showing up at the edge uh, say like, well, you know, tough luck for you, but now I've got all these due process rights, I have habeas review, et cetera. And this is the idea that if instead you cross a border illegally somewhere and then you, you're found in Tucson 
and then you're taken into custody, we're gonna we're not gonna give you the benefit of having snuck into the country in that way and gotten past the border. That's the theory. Now there are two big problems with that line of reasoning. Um, the first, well, the the two big problems are the Supreme Court has never endorsed either of them. Right. Um, so it's an open question. Well, at that level, let me say, let me, let me, let's be clear about what's open and what's not. So the Supreme Court has, as you say, right, adopted something called the entry fiction, which is that arriving aliens stopped at the border don't have due process rights. Um, but, and this is really important, the court has never said that the entry fiction applies to the suspension clause. Um, right, that is to say that you may not have due process rights, but the court has never said you also therefore get no judicial review. Ah, yeah. They right? haven't said one way or the other. They haven't said one way or the other, but of course there's Boumedian, right, where you had non-citizens outside the U.S. with no connection to the U.S. who were not seeking entry into the United States, mm -hmm. where the Supreme Court says even in that context, the suspension clause, quote, has full effect. Bobby, I would think that if, if non-citizens held outside the U.S. at Guantanamo um, are protected by the suspension clause, non-citizens physically present in the United States should also be protected by the suspension clause. Well, so I can clause. imagine two distinctions. One, so Kennedy says Guantanamo is in effect in the, quote, constant jurisdiction of the United States. So, so, it's is, not, Pen so, so is Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. So then the other, so, <laughs> but, but so the idea that that's outside the United States and therefore a fortiori, if you're in the United States, it should be stronger. I'm not sure they're actually different. How about as, how about as strong? As, so, so I think that's, that's not necessarily a distinction. Uh, secondly, in the Guantanamo scenario, it's the government's fault they're there. Right? The government put them there. The government chooses for them to be there. The government controls them. In this case, it's sort of the reverse. It's the aliens' desire to be in the United States. They've put themselves in. Do they get to benefit themselves in this yeah. way? I'm not saying this should control, but I could I could distinguish it that way. Factually, although I don't think that the, the, the sort of role of the government versus the detainee was relevant to Justice Kennedy's analysis in Boumediene. I mean, it's not one of the factors he points to. And anyway, the, yeah. but so, so the first problem is, right, that the suspension clause, has, that the Supreme Court has never said the suspension clause is like the due process clause for purposes of the entry fiction. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, the entry fiction. The second problem um, is that the Supreme Court has quite expressly in a number of cases, held that even undocumented immigrants in the United States have more constitutional protections than arriving aliens stopped at the border. Right. So I think that's that seems to me to be more likely to do the work here. Right. For better or for worse. I mean, and the, right. and the theory behind that is, you know, many of these individuals are not just folks who got here last night, right? These are, in many cases, folks who have been living in the United States for 25, 30 years right. who actually have fairly substantial connection to the United States, even if they were never lawfully admitted to the United States. And that seems, that seems to resonate more with Kennedy's theories about where, where jurisdiction is going to lie. If either of these things is true, then the Third Circuit's wrong, right. right? And either way, the Third Circuit's opinion has enormous ramifications for, among other things, the travel ban litigation, mm -hmm. right. right, for various of the other policies. No, this is going to have a lot to do with who gets to litigate what. And so I think, you know, whatever you think the right answer is in Castro, it's a pretty compelling case for certiorari because of the tension between the Third Circuit's decision and at least that second threat, right, the notion that undocumented immigrants in the United States are, for constitutional purposes, differently situated from arriving aliens stopped at the border. This is So this is going to be uh, under consideration for CERT. For CERT on, on Thursday. Thursday. So we might, I mean, the you know, if folks who are sort of Supreme Court insiders and nerds, um, the court's practice lately has actually been... Are those two separate categories? <laughs> Anyways. Um, or nerds. Um, the court's practice lately has not been to grant cases right after their first conference. Usually they relist them for a week to make sure there are no procedural problems or other sort of weird mm. things going on. Um, so if we don't hear anything on Monday, that's probably a good sign for a grant of certiorari. Okay. Of course, we could hear Monday that they've denied cert. I see. So they're more likely to say no right away 
Yes takes a little more time. Right. So, so all this is just to say that, you know, uh, the, the, the orders list next Monday will come out before our next episode, barring some late-breaking development. Very interesting. No, so as long as we're kind of pivoting now away yeah. from the substance, but staying with Gorsuch, are there any hazing rituals that the new justice <laughs> must go through, Steve? So Justice Kagan has talked about this, right? The the junior justice has two principal hazing responsibilities. Um, the first is at these conferences, they are the doorkeeper because yeah. no one else is allowed in the room. And so anytime a clerk comes with a message or anything, they're the ones who have to go to the door, so they get up a lot. Um, the second is the junior justice is in charge of the cafeteria committee at the Supreme <laughs> Court, um, which actually is pretty onerous duty because when one of the justices has a gripe about what they're serving for lunch that day. Which I bet comes up from um, time to time. It's always the junior justice who gets the short end of that stick. So Justice Kagan talks about how it was her fault that a particular soup was too salty. Oh, heavens. Um, you know, all <laughs> these institutions have these weird kinds of So you're of saying he's, he's been handed a poison chalice. Um I don't think it's a special. I don't think he feels that way, and I don't think anyone who's ever been the junior justice on the court has has felt like it's anything other than you know tra- tra- tradition. I guess he can withstand it. I, something tells me he'll manage. This is funny. This all should have come up more and been a more central part of the confirmation hearings. But, oh gosh. Uh, speaking about things that have happened recently, um, so explain to me this business about Hamilton becoming part of your your Passover celebration. Well, so last night was, was the first night of Passover, and of course it's tradition um, as part of Passover that you're going to have a seder. Um, a seder is I mean, Seder actually literally just means order, but Seder is a sort of traditional meal where you tell the story of Passover and, you know, of why matzah, we didn't, you know, let the bread rise because we were in a hurry to escape from the Pharaoh who was, um, it was an early case of of humanitarian intervention, maybe. It was self-help. Self-help. It was self-help. Well, it wasn't just self-help. It was divine help. Well, so I'm saying like a little bit of R2P from above. There you Uh, I think that should be the, the title of this episode. R2P from R2P above. from above. Oh, my gosh. Um, anyway, but so so the story is often told out of the Haggadah, um, the traditional sort of storytelling book, which has the the story and the songs and the prayers and all that stuff. Um, well, these two folks um, So it's a libretto, basically. It is basically a libretto to, to Passover. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the Hamilton obsession, which runs, Bobby, as you know well, far and wide, um, has now apparently extended all the way into um, the Haggadah universe. Um, where these two folks, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I can figure out who, their names, um, but basically these two folks put together um, a Haggadah that tells the story of Passover, but that switches out many of the songs and prayers for songs and prayer for songs from Hamilton. And so there are oh my there are Passover songs, but to the tune of Hamilton. Oh, that, songs. that's pretty brilliant. That um, is pretty wonderful. So instead of the ten dual commandments, right? It's the ten plagues. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there, there's some real sort of creativity, and 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 um, it would be especially better um, if you could if you could actually sing. None of us can. Oh, okay. I'm but, glad to know you weren't up there rapping. No, but Emily Cohen and Jake Adler, students at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, um, major props to you for um, reinvigorating Passover and making our Seder last night a little more interesting. I am super inspired by this. We've got we're hosting Easter Sunday uh, brunch after church this Sunday, and I will see if I can get all my relatives involved in some sort of Easter version of this. <laughs> uh, very inspiring indeed. You know the the Easter and Passover stories are a little different. I don't don't know if, if, if they'll map on quite as well. I think that Hamilton is pretty universal. Yeah. And indeed, that's sort of the, the whole idea, right? That there are universal aspirations. And All I will say, my, my, my best friend's husband, one of the folks we were celebrating our Seder with last night, um, has not seen or listened to Hamilton and refuses to. 
And so I asked what? him, so I asked him, are you just dead inside or are you, you know, being difficult for no reason? What kind of answer could he possibly have given? He just didn't answer the question. Well, he's, he's hostile to show, show tunes or what? It's not hostility. It's just like, eh. And, and I, I just don't understand how you can be indifferent. You can, you can criticize Hamilton, right, perhaps for taking some historical liberties, um, right? I don't know. Um, but, but it seems like you can't say it's bl- eh. All right, so, so we've definitely lost everyone except for folks who really enjoy this sort of ridiculous, uh, uh, uninformed speculation bias. <laughs> but let me just pivot there and point out that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda also was heavily involved in the music for the, the recent Disney uh, smash Moana, which uh, with my three children, I have seen many times at this point. <laughs> and I got to say, you know, it, it's great. It's got the guy that from the original cast who plays George Washington, mm-hmm. whose name's escaping me right now, but he plays the uh, chief. Chris Jackson. Chris Jackson plays the chief on the island. Mm. Uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's musical sense, his his particular rhythm and the melody structures he uses in Hamilton, you can absolutely tell at certain points, and it really adds a lot. I think I think what folks are going to realize the long way they listen to this podcast, both today and over time, is Bobby and I are both Abu El Banat. We are both father. No we are means. both fathers of daughters. Oh, I love it. Okay, that actually becomes my new, uh, you know. Stage name. Indeed. And it's the title <laughs> of a West Wing episode, which is how I know it. Oh, that's fabulous. I guess on that note, we've exhausted our listeners. Yeah, Bobby, I got to go teach my federal courts class all about Congress's power to abrogate state sovereign immunity. <laughs> nice. Well, on that note, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.